church. How are you this morning? Good? Yeah. Okay, so I get to actually uh, work for a living again. So uh, we've been seven weeks. We've been in a video message. So yeah, seven weeks is crazy because we were... Uh, First, the first Sunday in January, was a, January 1st was a Sunday, we did Nathan's video message for the vision of the church, and then we've been in six weeks of the Blessed Life series, which has been amazing, uh, and it lays the foundation for how God wants us to handle our resources, which is really, really important. We've heard many testimonies of people where the Lord has been blessing them already because they've gotten in right alignment with their, their resources and giving and tithes and offerings into the church. And so uh, it's been awesome. But now we're jumping back in to 2 Samuel. We, we saw a recap of 1 Samuel. 2 Samuel uh, is an amazing story of, of basically King David. Okay, so we're going to be, 1 Samuel looked at Samuel, then it looked at King Saul, and then we got a little bit of David at the end. All right? Uh, and this first passage that we're going to be studying today is, what do you do when your enemy falls? But before we get into the passage itself, let me give you a rundown, a breakdown of 2 Samuel and how it's, how it's all going to look after we go through these, these, uh, this, this, this book. You can break 2 Samuel down into basically three parts, okay? So the first part is David's triumphs, okay, chapter 1 through 10. We're going to see how David is blessed by the Lord. He's living the right, with a right heart. He's moving exactly where God wants him to move. He's, going, he's, he's walking in a great anointing that God has given him. And so we see many triumphs that come from this. Then in chapters 11 and 12, we see David's transgressions. We see David kind of gets a little sloppy. He gets a little lazy. He starts to think, ah, I can kind of go off and do what I want. He sees Bathsheba. He uh, bathing on the rooftop. Bathsheba's married to one of his uh, men in the army named Uriah. Well, David sleeps with Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. David tries to cover up his sin, kills Uriah, Uriah to kind of make it look like, like, okay, it was probably Uriah's baby and not David's baby. He basically becomes an adulterous murderer, okay, at that point. He'd be in jail today if he were alive in this, in this century, right? But, the, uh, the, but then we see what happens in the, the end of the, cha- of the book, chapters 13 through 24. It leads to David's troubles, Okay, so we got the triumphs, the transgressions, and the troubles. That's basically what 2 Samuel is going to look like. I think, if you're like me, we could all learn and see ourselves in David in all three of these stages. The triumphs, the transgressions, and the troubles. Right? We've all made mistakes. Everyone has, has fallen. The Bible says that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Uh, but I would, the hope in 2 Samuel for me when I read this book is that God uses David in a mighty way even despite his transgressions. God knew that David was going to make these mistakes, but God still calls David a man after his own heart. David is the second most talked about character in all of Scripture, second only to Jesus. This is pretty impressive. For a man who is an adulterous murderer, <laughs> this is a pretty big honor, right? Again, God looked at David's heart, and yes, he made mistakes, but there was something that David knew about God that I think allowed the Lord to give him this stature when it comes to Scripture. 62 chapters of the Bible are devoted to David. 1,118 verses are ascribed to him. That is a big, big portion of God's Word given to this one man. By comparison, Abraham and Joseph only had 14 chapters devoted to them. Jacob had 11 chapters, and Elijah had less than 10 chapters. So David is, is one of the most central 
characters of all of Scripture, second only to Jesus. You can see his importance in phrases reflected in God's Word. Phrases like this. Phrases like the city of David. You have the star of David, which is the, I'm wearing my Israeli pin right now, and you can see the star. If you're, I don't know if you're zooming in right now for online, but here, if you want to zoom in, the star of David is right here on the flag, the Israeli flag. The city of David, I, when I got to go visit Israel in, in, in December, um, we went to the city of David. We saw the palace of King David. It was amazing, amazing time. This, this man has such high regard throughout all of world history, not just biblically, but through all, out of all, throughout all of world history. You have the lineage of David, okay? The lineage of David. You see the seed of David, which is referred to as Christ. Christ is the seed of David. He is the one, he's the, he's the one that came from the lineage of David to set us all free. You have the house of David, the house that will, that will live throughout all of eternity because Jesus came from the house of David. You have the tabernacle of David. You have the offspring of David. And you have the root of David. Even in, even in Psalms, Psalms talks about how God had chosen this man, David, to set up something that would have eternal value that would never fall apart through the, through the lineage of David, which would have been Jesus. In Psalm 78, you don't have to turn there, but I have it here on the screen. Verse 67, this is Asaph. He's writing um, about what God has said of David. Moreover, he refused the tent of Joseph, he being God, refused the tent of Joseph, and chose not the tribe of Ephraim. Now, many of you know we have a young man in our production room named Ephraim, right? So he's not here today, but if you see Ephraim, say, hey, Ephraim, we talked about you at church on Sunday, okay? So Ephraim is just one of the tribes of, of uh, Israel. But chose not the tribe of Ephraim, uh, but chose the tribe of Judah. Jesus is, is referred to often as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He came from Judah. That was David. That's where the, David came from. The Mount of Zion, which he loved. He, and he built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth which hath established forever. He chose David, also his servant, and took him from the, she the sheepfolds. That's an important piece. From following the ewes that have their young, he brought him to be the shepherd of Jacob's people and, and Israel, his inheritance. So he, was, so he was their shepherd according to the integrity of the heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. One of the themes of David's life that jumps out to me often is that God prepared David for the palace on the shepherd's hill. Now, many of you may think, uh, you, you might be in a season where you're like, it, seem, it seems insignificant. What you're doing right now is just, it, nobody knows, nobody cares. It's like, you know, you're off, in a, you're off in a proverbial shepherd's hill taking care of these stupid sheep, Right? Like, who cares about the sheep? This seems like a really minor task. And David was the youngest of Jesse's sons. Remember when Samuel came in, in 1 Samuel and said to Jesse, God has called the king to come out of your family. What does Jesse do? He parades all of his sons before Samuel and says, here are my sons. And Samuel gets to the very last one. And he's like, hey, we're, this is it. None of these guys are, are it. And Jesse is like, oh, well, I guess I have one more son. Like, <laughs> He's just out taking care of the sheep on the shepherd's hill, right? Think about how insignificant you must feel, right, if you're David, right? You're doing an insignificant task, but God trained David's heart to be the man who would have the integrity to care for his people on that shepherd's hill. If you've ever found yourself in a shepherd's hill, know that God's probably training you for some aspect of leadership. 
If you can take care of sheep and you can put your life on the line for these sheep, how much more will you be able to take care of my people is what God is saying. God has placed you in leadership positions, whether it's over your family, over your business, over your community, over your church, whatever it might be. But he's raising you up. He has to train you. If you're gonna be a godly leader, he has to train you somewhere. Well, you're probably in a Shepherd's Hill experience right now or have been in a Shepherd's Hill experience right now. See it as a, as a beautiful time where you can grow your heart to look more like the heart of God. That's what he did with David. David learned to, to, to be, be very deadly with a sling shot when he was a shepherd. Well, look at how that turned out for him in the battle of David and Goliath. David, a lot of people think David just ran into battle, was unprepared, really had no training whatsoever, and God just miraculously took that hand and that sling and took the rock and made it hit, hit Goliath right in the forehead. No, I would argue that David was skilled with that sling because he had learned to protect his sheep with that sling. He wasn't afraid of Goliath because he had already fought a bear and killed a bear with his own two hands, and he fought a lion and killed a lion with his own two hands. David learned how to go up against the enemies when he was a shepherd. What shepherd hill are you on right now where God is teaching you how to go up against the enemies? It may not be the ultimate enemy yet, but it's coming. Don't ever look down on those shepherd hill moments. I've had them in my life, I have them often, where it's like, ah, I'm, this seems insignificant. And God says, this is a shepherd hill moment. I'm, I'm preparing you for the palace on the shepherd hill. And your palace may, be, may look different than other palaces, but God is preparing you for whatever he wants you to do on those shepherd hills. David is called twice in scripture a man after God's own heart. That's, that's a big deal. That's huge. And remember, David was flawed. David did some really bad things, and yet he still was referred to in scripture as a man after God's own heart. My prayer for all of us, my prayer for me, my prayer for you as Life Church is that when heaven talks about Life Church, heaven says, wow, there are a bunch of people after God's own heart right there. Can you imagine? The angels are talking about you. The saints are looking at you. The Father knows what's going on here. What are they saying when they look down at Life Church? Are they saying, hmm, that's a, kind of a, a weak community of pseudo-Christians? Or are they saying, those are bold, on-fire Jesus followers who have a heart after God? Amen. That would be all, right? That should be our prayer. 1 Samuel ends with the death of King Saul on Mount Gilboa. Okay, so we see that Saul basically was going on a pretty high trajectory lifestyle, a path. Early on, he had a lot of promise. King Saul was raised up by God and, and, uh, and, and anointed by Samuel. And he, he seemingly had all of the characteristics of a good king, but then his heart lacked integrity. And we see that he disobeyed God back in 1 Samuel 15. He did not do what God asked him to do, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But but now we see that Saul's life ends in tragedy on Mount Gilboa. I was in, I was in uh, Israel in December, like I said earlier, and we got to go, uh, not, we didn't go up on Mount Gilboa, but we drove by it on our way to the Sea of Galilee. So this is the Sea of Galilee right here, and this is Mount Gilboa. Beautiful, beautiful place. So this is, this is what it looks like right here. So imagine Saul and Jonathan are up on this hill right now, and they're battling the Philistines. You know, this is, uh, you know, 3,000 three, uh, 3, years ago. And, uh, and so this would have been the place where Saul and Jonathan would have met their end, all because Saul was, had turned away from the Lord. Down here in this beautiful valley, this is uh, the Valley of Jezreel. Okay, this is where some believe that the Battle of Armageddon is going to happen. This is where Jezebel 
uh, was thrown off the tower to her death uh, uh, when Jehu went and, and did what the Lord had asked to do. This is, I mean, the Bible's full. I mean, it's like an epic, like, comic book series. I mean, it's just like, you know, battle after battle, epic death, epic rise, epic fall, epic, epic you know, ep- epic everything, right? But this is, actually where, this is actually where it occurred. A lot of those epic stories that we read about occurred there. So, so let's dive into verse 1 now of chapter 2. And we laid the groundwork. Saul just died, and here's what happened. After the death of Saul, David returned from his victory over the Amalekites and spent two days in Ziklag. So remember, David was, was chasing the Amalekites because they raided the home in Ziklag, his home and his men's homes in Ziklag. They took their women, they took their kids, and they mourned, and they were brokenhearted, and the Lord said, go get them, I'll, I'll restore everything to you. They got their women back, they got their, their, uh, their children back, and it was, it, was a, it was a beautiful thing. But the, David had just come back from destroying the Amalekites in Ziklag. And on the third day, a man arrived from Saul's army camp. He had torn his clothes and put dirt on his head to show that he was in mourning. He fell to the ground before David in deep respect. Okay, so remember, this is the Amalekites. Okay, they have been terrorists for generations. They were the, the same group of people that birthed out of King Amalek, that's where you get Amalekite from, back all the way back to the day of Moses, when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt. The Israelites had no army. They were ill-equipped to defend themselves. The Lord raised up Moses and said, I'm leading you out of, of Egypt and out of captivity. And wouldn't you know, as the two million people start walking out of Egypt towards the promised land where the Lord was leading them, there was this this loser of a man named Amalek who said, oh, this is a great opportunity for me not to go up against the front where the strong men are, but we should start picking off the weak, infirmed, feeble, elderly in the back of this two million person procession. And so they started coming up from behind and killing those who who, who really had no way to defend themselves. They've been doing this since the day of Moses. Now remember, God is a good father. You may look at this when the Lord says, Moses, you're going to have to tell Joshua that I'm going to settle the score with Amalek and his descendants. I'm going to blot the nation of the Amalekites off of the face of the earth. I'm going to kill them all and everything that they own. Men, women, children, sheep, cattle, everything. You may be saying, man, God is a what a wrathful God. I don't know if I want to follow that. No, no, no. Look at it from the perspective of a loving father. How many fathers are in this room right now? What would you do, dads? And now we go to a, you know, a, a great church with your Second Amendment loving church, right? You know, like, uh, so I think I know the answer here, right? Uh, what would you do if someone broke into your house and was going to rape your wife and kill your children? Exactly, right? You're going to do everything in your power to end the threat. And people might say to you, well, Brent, do you, you must hate that person doing that. no. You don't hate the person, you love your family. That's the love that you have for your family. says, I'm going to defend those that I love. God is the exact same way. That's where we get that heart as fathers. It doesn't come just just out of nowhere. It comes because we're modeling our father who will defend his children. And so when the Amalekites came up and started destroying his children, what do you think the God who who loves his children is going to do? He's going to say, we got a score to settle. You mess with my kids? You mess with me, right? 
And that's the way God is. So when you see these stories of God bringing hellfire down from heaven, don't put yourself in the place of the victim, or of the, 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 you see the, the terrorists as the victims or the wicked as the victims. They're not victims. They've been oppress, oppressing what is right and they've been oppressing and victimizing God's children and God will not put up with that. Why? Not because he's a hateful God, but because he's a loving father. That's how you have to look at stories like this when you see him in scripture. David was doing the same thing. He just came from slaughtering the Amalekites that took his town of Ziklag. Remember when they came back from battle, they find that the Amalekites, while his mighty men and David, they were all fighting these wars and the mighty men were with David and, and they were saying, okay, this is God's anointing. We're gonna do what God wants. We're following David, not because of David, but because of God. And then they, they seemingly give their life over to God's plan and then they come home and guess what? If you're one of David's mighty men, you see your, your wife is gone and your children have, are gone because they've been kidnapped by these, these uh, weasels of a nation, the Amalekites. What are you gonna do? There's huge mourning. And, and I believe they probably started questioning, why are we even doing this? And then the Lord, in his mercy, said to David, go chase them down, I will restore, I protected your women, I protected your children, I protected all of your cattle, go chase them down, destroy them, and you'll get everything back. And that's what happened. And so here we have, David just came back from doing just that. So this is the foundation to what was going on. And again, I just wanna hit on, God in his foreknowledge had a plan for wiping off the, the Amalekites from the, the face of the earth. He, he, uh, he understood the threat that the Amalekites would always be to his children. So let me just jump ahead. Real, well, let me jump back to 1 Samuel 15 and just kind of show you where Saul messed up and should have dealt with the Amalekites and, the, and he didn't do it. He disobeyed God. He kept, some, he kept certain things alive and it was the beginning of the end, that act of disobedience. He was 95% obedient but that 5% of disobedience was the beginning of Saul's end. So in, verse, in chapter 15, starting in verse seven, seven, then Saul slaughtered the Amalekites from, from Havilah all the way to Shur, east of Egypt. He captured Agag, who was the Amalekite king, but completely destroyed everyone else. Saul and his men spared Agag's life and kept the best of the sheep and the goats, the cattle, the fat calves, and the lambs, everything, in fact, that appealed to them. They destroyed only what was worthless or of poor quality. So here you have Saul and his men thinking they know best. God said to destroy everything because of what Amalek did in the days of Moses. God said to wipe them off the face of the earth. But God also knew what was going to happen if Saul wasn't obedient. Let's jump ahead now to about 550 years. So put a pin in this story here. 550 years, there's a king, a Persian king, that has uh, all of the Israelites have been taken captive in the Persia, but God is blessing them. So the Jewish people are there. There's a king, his name is King Xerxes of the Persian Empire. And he promotes a man named Haman, son of Hamadatha. Okay, so this is the same Xerxes. Have you guys uh, seen the movie 300? Anyone see that movie? Okay, so 300, you know, we have Leonidas or uh, uh, Gerard Butler, like, this is Sparta, you know, like that, that point right there. No, okay, anyone? All right, all right, well. It's a pretty epic movie, okay? It's about the 300 Spartans that battled the Persian Empire. Well, the bad guy in that movie, if you remember that movie, is King Xerxes, who is Esther's husband, all right? I know it's kind of like, oh man, that kind of gives me a whole different flair on Esther and the, the whole book, right? right? But that is King Xerxes. 
They were enemies of the Greek state, and the Greeks, Leonidas, at the Battle of Thermopylae, he, he put up a stand, and the 300 uh, Greeks uh, killed countless Persians. Now, they were all, the Greeks were eventually overrun, and they were all killed, the Spartans. And, uh, but it was an epic battle of 300 men putting up a stand against a, basically a, a tyrant king. And Xerxes was that. He, he believed himself to be a god. All right, But he promotes a man named Haman. So the battle of the 300 of Thermopylae uh, was in 480 B.C., Six years later, we have this story in 473 B.C., the story of Xerxes promoting a man named Haman over all of the empire. He's the second most powerful person in the Persian Empire, and guess who he's a descendant of? His name is Haman the Agagite. Oh, Agag, the king that Saul spared. If Saul would have done what God had said, we wouldn't even know the story of Haman, because Haman wouldn't even have been in existence. And look what Haman does over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. All of the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by, for the king had commanded. But Mordecai, okay, who was the uncle of Esther, refused to bow down or show him respect. Mordecai was a Jew. Then the palace officials asked the, asked, at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? They spoke to him day after day, but still he refused to comply with the order. So they spoke to Haman about this to see if he would tolerate Mordecai's conduct, since Mordecai had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it was not enough just to deal with Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all of the Jewish people throughout the entire empire of Xerxes, basically the known world at that time. God knew in his foreknowledge that Agag, the Amalekite, was going to lead to this 550 years down the road. If Saul would have just been obedient, this threat would have never happened to the Jewish people. And a good father knows, knows his children, loves his children, and protects them from the threats. That's what God was doing, but Saul disobeyed. I think the Amalekite picture is a wonderful picture of our flesh. What can you take from this story? If you don't put your flesh to death, your flesh will come back and threaten your very existence. If you don't put it to death, this is what will happen. This is the story of sin. The Amalekite people are, it's the, it's the picture of sin in your life. You can say, ah, well, 95% of what I'm gonna do is I'm, I'm gonna obey God with 95%, but this is like 5% over here. I'm just gonna kind of put it over here. It's kind of my thing. It looks really good and pleasurable right now. If you don't put it all to death, your flesh will come back and get you just the way it got Saul, and it will probably have ripple effects for your children and children's children. It's serious, but we have to deal with our flesh. Verse three, David says, where have you come from? I escaped the Israelite camp, the man replied. What happened, David demanded. Tell me how the battle went. The man replied, our entire army fled the battle. Many of the men are dead, and Saul and his son, Jonathan, are also dead. How do you know Saul? How do you know Saul and Jonathan are dead, David demanded of the young man. The man answered, I happen to be on Mount Geboa. 
and we'll get to that in a second. I don't think he just happened to be there. And there was Saul leaning on his spear with the enemy chariots and the charioteers closing in on him. When he turned and saw me, he cried out for me to come to him. How can I help? I asked him. He responded, who are you? I'm an Amalekite, I told him. Then he begged me to come over here and put me out of my misery, for I am in terrible pain and want to die. So I killed him, the Amalekite told David, for I knew he couldn't live. Then I took his crown and his armband, and I have brought them here to you, my Lord. Now here we have a contradiction of Scripture, it seems. So at the end of 1 Samuel, the very last chapter, we see that the Bible says that Saul took his own life and he died. But now, the beginning of 2 Samuel, chapter 1, we see the Amalekite saying, no, 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 Saul didn't take his own life. I killed him. And what I believe is actually the truth is how the Bible says Saul died in 1 in in Samuel, the last chapter, where Saul took his own life. Remember, the Amalekites are terrorists, they're scavengers, and they only do what, what's in their best self-interest. That he has no loyalty to either David or Saul. I believe that, that that young man was just waiting for death to happen on Mount Gilboa, and he was going to pillage and rummage through the, the dead and grab whatever he can find. He happened to come ac- across King Saul. He would have known King Saul by what King Saul was wearing, the crown and the armband. And he would have known that that was Jonathan based on Jonathan's shield and and what he was wearing. And he thinks in that moment, he says, ooh, I can win favor with the new king now because I know David and Saul have been enemies. David's gonna be the rightful king, most likely. I could take the armband. I could tell David that I killed him and David then will elevate me in the new kingdom. Now, this happens all the time in the world that we live in today. If you're in the world of politics like I am, I see this on a regular basis. People hitch their court or their, their cart to the horse that they believe is going to be in power. They have no, I see it all the time. There's, there's no principles. There's no convictions in a lot of people in the world of politics. It's like, if this person's rising to power, I really don't care what they stand for. I just want to be in power with them. And so I'll come over here and, you know, flatter them and do what needs to be done. If you're going into politics, I know we've got, uh, is Nick in the room? Where's Nick? Nick Gamillion. Okay, running for city council. Be careful if you win because you're going to get all those flattering people. Oh, Nick, I was with you all the time. Oh, man, I love you. Here's, here's the armband of the politician I killed, and I'm just bringing it to you now, right? You know? <laughs> no, no, like, but if you're, if you're running in that world, this is what happens. In kingdoms, this, people have very little loyalty to principle or conviction. They have only loyalty to power. And that's what this Amalekite is doing. He was lying to David about this. He only was interested in his own selfish gain. Problem is, he didn't really know David's heart. And now we see in verse 11, David and his men tore their clothes in sorrow when they had heard the news. Now, remember, the Amalekite came and he had torn his clothes and put dirt on his head as a sign of mourning. I think the Amalekite probably knew that David loved Jonathan. And when he heard that Jonathan was dead, David was really gonna have a hard time with that. I don't think he, he calculated the respect for the anointing that Saul had. And that's, that's what happens here. They mourned and wept and fasted all day for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the Lord's army and the nation of Israel because they had died by the sword that day. This was a terrible day for Israel. The Philistines got more land. They're more emboldened now. David knew that this wasn't good for anybody, that Saul was killed by the Philistines. And David was saddened. But David models the heart of God because I think we get the fact that he mourns for Jonathan. That's easy. He loved Jonathan. 
it's not hard to see someone mourning for somebody that they love when they lose a loved one. But David mourning for Saul models the heart of God. When he mourns and is saddened by the destruction of his enemy. Now this is a, this is a powerful story because even in scripture, we see all throughout scripture, these, this type of heart where the Lord says, don't mourn for, for those that have died, even the, your enemies. Don't, or don't, don't rejoice over that. Mourn for them. Be saddened because God is not the God of death. God hates every piece of, everything about death. Death was never his plan. You know why it's such a gut punch when someone dies in your family or someone you love? It's because human beings were never supposed to go through death. That was not God's design when he created Adam and Eve in the garden. But because of free will and because of Adam and Eve sinning, we now have to deal with death on a regular basis. And it's a gut punch. But when your enemy dies, a lot of times we Yes, this is great. Justice has been served. Praise the Lord. Let's celebrate and have a party. You know what the Bible says about that? In Proverbs, it says this. Don't rejoice when your enemies fall. Don't be happy when they stumble. In 2 Peter, it says this. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. And Jesus echoes these same comments. He says this, he says, but I, Jesus, say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. When I was, I was coming back through the airport in about 2011, I think, I think it was 2011. And as I was walking through the airport, I was coming back from a, a conference I was leading worship at out in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And, and I remember, I think I was in the Dallas-Fort Worth airport at the time. And I remember walking through uh, the airport and all of a sudden, on all the TV screens, this breaking news comes across. And it's President Obama, he's giving a, a press conference. And he says, you know, uh, my fellow Americans, we got him. Remember that? He was talking about Osama bin Laden. We got Osama bin Laden, one of the most wanted men, or the most wanted man in all of the world. And we got him, we killed him. And the place, the, all the airport just started erupting in celebration and people were cheering and I, I started joining in. I was like, yes, we got that. I'm gonna say a bad word. I can't say a bad word here, you know, like, okay. <laughs> okay, we got him, well, yeah, yeah. And I felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit in that moment. Say, Micah, don't do that. Don't, don't celebrate over this. It was right, I, this is what the Lord told me. He said, Micah, it was right for you to kill him as Americans. It was right for the military to go in and serve justice. But don't celebrate this. This is, my heart is that all would come to know me. You did what was right in my eyes by killing a wicked man, but now that man is someone, I love that man, and now he's going to be separated from me from all eternity. Don't celebrate that. Do what's right. And, and I remember, I will never forget that. I just stopped. I stopped in my, you know, cheering and everything. I said, it, it was right that we did this, but gosh. It's, let's not sell, let's not sell, let's move on. Let's, let's, let's dole out justice. That's the heart of God. You see what I'm saying? Again, I don't want you to hear, us, hear me say that. I, I question what the military did. No, that was the hand of the Lord moving through the justice of our, of our government, coming and getting somebody who had done wicked things to our nation. That's, that's a good thing, but it still saddens the heart of the Lord. Even Jesus weeped over the city, Jerusalem, that was going to crucify him. He weeped over them because he knew the destruction that was going to befall them. Remember when he was hanging on the, on the cross and he cries out to heaven, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. How many times 
Does your enemy come at you, say things about you? You're dealing with enemies. I deal with enemies all the time, especially, you know, yeah, I, I, can't, I get the arrows, and you guys laugh because you're like, yeah, yeah, man, people really hate you, Micah, you know? It's like, <laughs> it is true. I have a lot of people who don't like me, right? Um, and, and it's really easy for me to, to, to it, see that, that rage, kind of that flesh comes out in me and says, you know what? You're, I'm gonna come at you too. And, and I feel like the Lord, he convicts me when that happens. He says, Micah, you need to pray for them. He says, because I love them too. He said, yes, they are your enemies, but they are not the enemy. They've given themselves over to the lies of the enemy. And when the Lord helped me start to see these people who are speaking lies, who are going against the ways of God as not being the enemy, but only being deceived by the real enemy, which is the devil, the principalities, the the rulers of darkness. That helped me separate out the person from the lie. And that, to me, changed my heart. So now I can see somebody who's screaming just vitriol at me. They're screaming these things that are just like, you know, you know, just some of the worst things in the world. And I can say, hey, that's, not, that's not you speaking. You don't know where you're getting that. But I know who is speaking that through you. And that's the enemy. And that's the devil. And that's the rulers of the dark world. And that helps give you the heart that I believe David had. David knew that Saul was not the enemy. He had been deceived by the enemy. Saul was, was, the, was God's anointed. And while he was still trying to, now I want to I make it really clear first. Notice that Saul didn't obey, or David didn't obey Saul. Honoring God's anointed doesn't necessarily always mean giving blind obedience to them. Okay, So if somebody is raised up and they're a wicked leader, yes, okay, they are raised up. God has put them there. That doesn't mean you have to obey them. David ran from Saul. Saul said, come back to me. David knew Saul was going to kill him. David ran from him. He didn't obey him. But he honored, he honored Saul in the way he says, listen, you, God's going to deal with you. I'm not going to step in the way of God to do this. That is the heart that we should be modeling as followers of Jesus. Give it over to the Lord. As we wrap up here in verse 13, then David said to the young man, who brought the news? Where are you from? And he replied, I am a foreigner in Malachite who lives in your land. Why were you not afraid to kill the Lord's anointed? David asked. Uh-oh, the Malachite didn't know. Uh, I thought you'd be happy there, king. And David's like, why were you not afraid? We're gonna come back to that word afraid in a second. To kill the Lord's anointed. Then David said to his men, he said, uh, take out your sword and kill him. So the man then thrust his sword into the Amalekite and killed him. You have condemned yourself, David said, for for you yourself confessed that you killed the Lord's anointed one. Now this is interesting. You have condemned yourself, David said. We're gonna see in chapters 11 and 12 when the prophet Nathan comes to David and says, David, there's a man in your kingdom who had one lovely sheep, just one. He loved this sheep. He cared for the sheep. He doled everything out he had for the sheep. And then there was a rich man who had many sheep that saw this one sheep in this other man's possession. He went and killed that man and took the sheep for his own. And David said, who is this man? He needs to be put to death. And Nathan says, you are that man. And by David's own words, he condemned his life and his family to a life of troubles and death and torment. It's amazing that this happens 
at the beginning of the book. Remember that when we get to this passage. David does the same thing the Amalekites did. He condemned himself. For you, you confess that you killed the Lord's anointed. And I think David, what he was saying, though, in that first part where he says, why were you not afraid to kill the Lord's anointed? You know, what he was, what he was saying is, do you know who God is? You don't revere the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You don't know the God the way, that God the way that I know him. And I would never in a million years think to even remotely raise up my hand against him by coming against those he has raised up. That, what David was saying, he was saying, he was saying there is great safety in the fear of the Lord. Now, I don't want you to think that there's great safety in fear. We're not supposed to fear anything but we are supposed to revere the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a reverence that we have for him. I, I remember going through you know, 2020 and 2021, and I looked around at churches all over this country. I'm like, all you people are scared out of your mind. What is going on? And they were bowing to fear. Why? Because they didn't actually fear the Lord. Whenever you fear the earth, the world, the things that are in it, that tells me right now that you don't have the fear of the Lord the way you need to. That tells me I don't have the fear of the Lord the way that I need to. And I, I asked the Lord in those moments, and I'm like, Lord, I'm, I'm afraid of what I see. Help me to fear you because I know in you there is safety. In the rock of my salvation is where my safety is found. If that's you today and you, you've, never, you've never walked into that salvation moment, you've never, you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we're gonna have a prayer time here and we're gonna say, hey, come down and give, over, give your pain and your hurt and your anger of your enemies over to the Lord. Let him change your heart into his heart. Become a man after God's own heart. Become a woman after God's own heart. And learn how to fear the Lord like David. And it will go well with you, I promise. Because we have example after example. When people fear God, it goes well with them because he is their, their banner, amen? I'm gonna invite the prayer team down now and we're gonna, we're gonna go into a song here. I think it's just a great embodiment of, it's a worship song, just, uh, it's an embodiment of First and Second Samuel. It's that same God who was the God of David, who was the God of Jacob, who was the God of Mary, who was that same God that we're reading about is the God that we follow today. And you may be up against the Goliath. You may be up against great battles. You may be up against persecution. And you may have enemies pursuing you that will never give up. And the Lord is saying, I know. I had enemies that won't give up either. And I've, I've walked with my children whom I love through the seasons when they've had enemies that won't stop pursuing them either. God can do the same thing that he did in David's heart. He can do it with you. If you'd like to receive prayer to have people that these prayer warriors down here to pray that God would just give you that heart. When we start singing the song, just come on down. If you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, tell that to one of the prayer team. Say, hey, I don't even know if, I can, if I'm at the starting point yet. And they would gladly walk you through receiving Jesus Christ into your own heart. Amen? Let me, let's pray. Father, we just uh, thank you for being the God of David, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who loves his children, the God that is the same God today, yesterday, and forever. Lord, we come to you now and we just say, Lord, would you mold our hearts into being hearts like yours? Let it be said of Life Church, when the heavens are talking about who we are, those are people who have a heart after God's own heart. 
Let it be said that we are people who fear you and revere you and understand the greatness and the majesty of who you are. Lord, if there's people in this room that are battling with their own enemies, Lord, I pray that you give them the heart of Jesus where they pray for their enemies, where they, where they, where they pray for those and love those who persecute them the way that you love them, God. But that is a supernatural kind of love. That is not an earthly love, but transform our hearts into that supernatural love now, we pray. Because you showed us the way through your sacrifice and what Jesus did for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you for